Welcome to the second episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents The Films of John Singleton, the next in a series where we run the entire filmography of a particular director, starting today, once again, with John Singleton. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as always, is my brother from another mother, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm great. I want everyone to know that uh, that intro for me was my idea, and then once you said it, I immediately regretted it. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Something about it actually coming out of your mouth. I was like, well, that's gross. All right. I, I have to be honest. When I was saying it, I felt like I was bringing on an affectation that was not normal for me and was potentially <laughs> offensive. So I agree with I, you, Liam. I won't go so far as to say it was offensive. I wasn't offend, offended by what you just did, but do I find it weird? Yeah, it was a little weird. It was a little weird. Liam, on the first episode of this series, uh, yeah. we talked about Boys in the Hood, and I think the other movie was called Abduction. Uh, films of, of greatly diverging quality, I would say. Uh, agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> I don't think there's a person on this planet who would disagree with what I just said. John Singleton, very interesting director. Again, I'm still very, very excited about his filmography. That hasn't changed at all with the fact that uh, that we're returning to it. On this episode, we're going to be talking about Poetic Justice from 1993 and Four Brothers from 2005. Uh, by the way, Four Brothers, I was I wasn't expecting it to be like abduction, but I didn't realize just how different it would be. Like his last two films could hardly be more different from one another. Um, but before we get to Poetic Justice and uh, Four Brothers, there was something that John Singleton did between Boys in the Hood, Liam, and Poetic Justice in 1993. That was. The music video from Michael Jackson's Remember the Time. And for those who don't remember the time of 1992, Michael Jackson was, I think at that point, I I don't know if you would still consider him the biggest artist in the world, but he was certainly in that conversation. Uh, He hadn't yet kind of tainted his reputation uh, for a number of different reasons. Dangerous was a huge success, even though uh, he has such kind of heights to live up to. I think some people still thought of it as a slight disappointment. But this video for Remember the Time was everywhere. Uh, They played it constantly on Much Music here in Canada and on, I'm sure, MTV in, uh, in the United States. What are your memories, Liam, of the Remember the Time video from that time, from 1992? Oh, I remember it was a huge deal. The fact that Eddie Murphy in it was in it was a big pop for people. Um, I don't think the extended version that uh, we watched to sort of prepare for this played regular MTV much because sure. the when Magic Johnson showed up, it blew my blew my mind. I was not, <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. Uh, and so I'm I'm thinking, well, I've seen this video a million times. So how did I not know Magic Johnson was in it? And I'm thinking maybe the shorter version, he doesn't show up quite as prominently, so it's I didn't notice or whatever. All I know is that at the time, it was kind of a big deal. Uh, but I also think, and you know, p- different people have different opinions about this, I think a lot of, uh, at least for me from Bad and before that, uh, Thriller, a lot of the singles he'd come out with at first were very danceable. Uh, and my feeling as a kid when this came out was that this was not a super danceable song, even though there is a very good dance sequence in the video. Um, if you heard this out and about, you wouldn't start just immediately moving. Whereas a lot of the early singles from the other records were the like the songs, you know, like the songs that made you want to, you know, either actually dance or at least do your whatever 
bullshit Michael Jackson impression that you had in your back pocket, which right. everyone fucking had. And if you didn't have a Michael Jackson impression, it's because you're younger than we are. Because yeah, no kidding. No one our age and older didn't at least pretend to moonwalk or grab their crotch <laughs> or something. Do the little kick in the air. Everyone had something. And so uh, I, that was my feeling. I mean, the video was still cool in my mind. Uh, the CGI at this point is upsetting but at the time it, i thought it was cool everything about it was cool to me but the song itself i thought uh this is weird it's not really like a real jammer you know it's not really i don't I don't, I don't like the song i'm just gonna go out and say it i think it's not a great I, I i love a lot of michael jackson's music uh even though i'm very conflicted on him as a person uh but i think that this is one of his weaker singles um, i don't i don't hate the song but i certainly don't if i'm making if i was going to make a party mix that was like, hey, let's ignore these problematic people party mix. I'm not putting this on there. You know, there's so many other hits. So this was the second single from Dangerous after Black or White, the uh, which another, also had... Another one that is not a jammer. It's no. not a jammer at all. Though it's got that do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do that they fit like seven different dance sequences into the video for it. But that had like a huge video as well that they played constantly that was also had like an intro section with Macaulay Culkin and George Went. uh so at the time that this video came out when Michael Jackson released the video it was an event like they showed this simulcast on a bunch of different television stations so for John Singleton who had just come off you know this really big movie but it was still his first movie it must have been a huge thing to be you know making a video with all of these celebrities in it for the one of the biggest musicians in the world. Uh, and so neither of us, I think, think the song is his greatest song or anything like that. But just going back to the video, it takes place in ancient Egypt. We have Eddie Murphy and Iman play like an Egyptian pharaoh and an Egyptian princess. And uh, they're being entertained by various acts who they don't like and sent to their deaths. And then a magician appears, Liam. And this magician throws some sand down and that sand becomes... Michael Jackson. And I guess Michael Jackson was also the magician. And he flirts with him on, which makes uh, Eddie Murphy very upset. And then most of the video involves a chase sequence of people trying to capture Michael Jackson, who at the end turns back into sand while spinning around. The best effect, I think, in the entire video. All this is like cutting edge CG with like all the backgrounds and the scope of the video at the time. But you uh, referenced it, Liam. It has not aged particularly well. No, 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 no. But I will say on a on a certain level, uh, we uh, let's acknowledge Doug is probably one of the whitest people in North America. I'm pretty white and I come from an even whiter place. <laughs> yeah. And uh I'm I'm half Puerto Rican, but I don't think that qualifies me to speak too much on on uh things of a particularly african-american bent but i i think <laughs> just just listen to what we talk about poetic justice yeah exactly we're both going to be a little like fish out of water in some sense uh, although at least i remember it from the time but i will say this about the uh, about the sequence of videos here because the first single as you just for me is black and white which uh i don't know how people feel about the song maybe you have fond memories of the song it's a corny I just song think, i just think beginning of the 90s which is sort of the you know, we are mid-drug war, which was, as we should all remember, a war on African-American people in America, basically. Uh, you know, Latinx folks too, but uh, a lot of black communities felt the brunt of the drug war. We're about to ramp up the drug war with the crime bill. Uh, and so, if anything, I'd say that issues of race in America are as important as they have ever been. And Michael Jackson wants us to know it don't matter if you're black or white. 
that that is not an important issue at all. It seems exactly like the kind of sentiment that John Singleton would be like, uh, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, right. it really matters. I mean, right. you think about the fact that the L.A. riots are, even though they're not explicitly referred to in Poetic Justice, it's in the background, right? You can, right. It's, it's happening everywhere that you look. Right. And so I think it is interesting, and I would love to read a history of this. If anyone, you know, maybe there's a book coming out on John Singleton or there is a John Singleton book. I just want to know how John Singleton talks to Michael Jackson like, yeah, yeah, you did this black or white video, had a lot of different folks in it. That's cool, whatever, whatever. The, this video, my image is Egypt. And I'm thinking only black people and mostly dark black people in the video. Because let's remember that even just the colorism of the time, that it was hard mm-hmm. for folks of a, uh, you know, black folks of a darker complexion even to get the attention or whatever. So there's a sense in which this video is, for Michael Jackson, very black. Like, yes. far more black than a lot of his most famous videos of the time. Uh, and maybe later on, there were others that were better examples, I, I, I'll admit. By the time we get into the later 90s, I'm not watching a lot of Michael Jackson, new Michael Jackson videos. Why but, is that, Liam? <laughs> just stop putting out music that I liked, you know? And that, that's, that's really the whole thing is like, sure, he also clearly had all kinds of other issues. I was not as cognizant of that sort of thing. I guess a lot of people at the time were. Uh, I was just not paying attention to the life of Michael Jackson at that point. But, uh, but I just didn't care about the music. I will say, though, like with this video, it's one of the first things I noticed is like, his videos, you know, had very diverse casts in the past, but this one is set in Egypt. And it doesn't make the decision that a lot of people do of making Egypt full of not very black people. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. And it's not completely unfair. I, I would say Egypt <laughs> is a, as far as color, a very diverse place. When you meet folks who are Egyptian, they can have all kinds of different. I'm thinking of a certain Katy Perry video. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, that's a, the worst case scenario. But it, you know, but it's Singleton is making a choice here, right? He's not choosing anyone for this video. From what we can, t- from from just watching it a couple times, he's not choosing anyone who looks a little like ambiguously brown. This is an Egypt full of black folks, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and, and uh, Michael Jackson is the most ambiguous looking person in, in all of Egypt in this video. And I think that's a choice. And it's an interesting choice after black or white, you know. So I don't know. I don't know if there's any actual politics there or if it's just Singleton was like, these are the people I like. And so they're in the video. I don't know, because I like I said, there's I don't, I've never read a the making of the the remember the time video. But I, I kind of want to now, you know. I wonder that this is just something I'm pondering now, and I have no evidence about this at all, whether so notoriously John Landis, of course, directed the thriller music video and he directed the black or white music video. And then John Singleton directed this video. I wonder if he was offered the black or white video or was given some sort of option on which single he was going to make the video for. Because you could kind of see John Singleton wrinkling at the idea of doing that black or white video. While this feels, even though this doesn't feel like Boys, the, uh, Boys in the Hood or um, Poetic Justice or anything like that, um, this obviously uh, reflects the representation that he wants to put into his films. 
Yeah, I you could say, well, it's the Remember the Time video. There's nothing political about it. And I on a certain level, I'm willing to agree. But he makes a decision about representation that, I mean, all you got to remember is that Gods of Egypt movie to remember that deciding <laughs> that Egypt is filled with black people is actually not that popular a decision in a lot of Hollywood. So uh, I think that's important. It's a, and, and, and it's an, it's a decision with Michael Jackson, too, to make sure he's surrounded by beautiful black folks is not a decision every director of his videos has made. So I, I really I really noticed that. Other than that, I don't think there's a lot with the video. It's a silly chase scene. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to see John Singleton actually directed something like that that's goofy and funny. Yeah, but, yeah. But there's not much about it to really talk about otherwise. You know what I mean? I, I do think that it was, considering what John Singleton's reputation would have been at the time, would have been the guy who makes gritty you know, street dramas because he only made Boys in the Hood. In terms of him getting away from that, doing a little bit of goofy humor, I think it. It even though a lot of his work to come will still be, um, will still be a lot of like action and gritty type material. The fact that Poetic Justice is a little bit lighter and a little bit more romantic, it he's already showing that he has interest in doing other things. Agreed. Well, that is Remember the Time. I'll put that uh, link to the video in the show notes if you want to check out that nine-minute video. That's actually not particularly good. It's so long. It's so long. It's so unnecessarily long. Well, Liam, I think it's time for us to take our first break. When we come back, something completely different. It's 1993's Poetic Justice starring Tupac Shakur and Janet Jackson. Another Jackson right after this. Columbia Pictures presents a story about losing your fear and finding your way. What do you write about? I was in my heart. What's that? Janet Jackson. Tupac Shakur. Poetic Justice. From the creator of Boys in the Hood. A mail carrier invites a few friends along for a long overnight delivery run. That is the woefully inadequate plot summary for Poetic Justice from the year 1993, uh, starring Tupac Shakur as that mail carrier. Uh, And one of his friends is a poet played by Janet Jackson. Her name is Justice in the movie. So, yeah, Poetic Justice, there's... There's a lot of meaning in that uh, in that title. Directed and written once again by John Singleton. That's one of the interesting things that we'll discover as we continue to go through his filmography, that uh, John Singleton will be less and less involved in the writing process as we get to the later films that, uh, that we've been discussing. Uh, a really stacked cast here, uh, including Queen Latifah, Suge Knight, Billy Zane and Lori Petty show up briefly at the beginning, and that's something I want to talk about uh, in just a little bit as well. Liam, this is a first-time watch for me. As I mentioned on the first episode of this series, movies like Poetic Justice did not get theatrical releases where I grew up in Newfoundland. They, uh, the, I think the general consensus was these were urban films, and urban films would not appeal to a bunch of stupid newfies in 1993. Uh, I don't know if that was the case or not, or if that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So for me, this was an opportunity to to visit a film that I had heard a lot about, that I knew about mostly because of its leads, but also I had a particular extra interest now that we've watched Boys in the Hood together and we've talked about it. This movie kind of seems, it's so different 
from Boys in the Hood that uh, it, it really seems like John Singleton did not want to be put in a box as the guy who made like street gangster movies. He wanted to be able to say, I can make all sorts of different things, and this is the proof of it. So this is very much a road movie of these characters who are, for, for a huge part of the running time, they're trapped in this mail uh, delivery vehicle, and they're traveling across California and, you know, just experiencing things as they go along. Uh, and I, wa- I really want to get your take on kind of the whole uh, scope of what this movie offers. But let's start with what do you think about Poetic Justice? I mean, I want to name probably off the bat that I have a certain amount of nostalgia for it. Sure. Uh, I'll be honest that that nostalgia hasn't led me to revisit the movie very much because <laughs> as I was watching it, I had forgotten a lot of this movie. Sure. Um, I knew the basic idea, plot summary of it, but I didn't remember the details and there were a lot of things that surprised me um, now that I was watching it as a 41-year-old as opposed to when I saw it when I was, I think, like 14, maybe, 13, sure. something like that. Anyways, point is, uh, I think I have a certain amount of nostalgic uh, glaze on it. That being said, I don't usually like... It. There's two ways to look at this movie. And the first way is as a sort of uh, a romantic film, a, a film about two people falling for each other. And I don't have a lot of patience for those kinds of movies. And uh, it's not my preferred genre. Usually, if, if, if you're going to have a movie that has a certain element of romance in it, I also need it to be very funny, which this movie is not. Or I need it to be supremely tragic. Now, there is some tragedy in this movie, but I don't think that's the point of the film at all. It's really not sort of the guiding thing. So when I uh, when I became more clear to me exactly the kind of movie I was watching, there was part of me that was kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to roll with this because this isn't usually my vibe. Sure. And yet I still found myself pretty wrapped up in it. There's a few moments that are a little slow for me, uh, and I think we can have a conversation about the dialogue later. Mm. Uh, but overall, I don't know. I kind of found myself wrapped up in it, and that actually clicked for me. I, I noticed uh, we, we we were had some info from the Wikipedia, and on the Wikipedia in the, in the reaction section, they have a quote from Roger Ebert in which he compares the movie to like a classic 70s meandering road trip kind of movie. Sure. And when he made that comparison, it clicked for me why I like the movie still. I don't know if I liked that as a kid. I probably as a kid just liked the movie because it was very hip hop and very black. And that was something that was important to me at the time. Sure. Um, But watching it now, it appealed to me because it is a movie just about characters interacting and there is melodrama, but it's not like a grand whatever. And even the tragedy that motivates things at the end is more about getting to a place and facing a reality and less about this is what's been animating the narrative all the time. What's been animating the narrative to this point is more just this situation of these characters traveling together and the lack of urgency of that compared to the deep urgency of Boys in the Hood. I found it really refreshing in a lot of ways. Now, I I don't know that it's perfect and I do think... um, in trying to make a movie very contemporary, you can date it horribly. And there are a few moments that feel supremely dated to me uh, in it. But overall, I don't know. I just found it a charming, uh, mostly interesting uh, excursion uh, that maybe isn't like an award-winning film. I'm not going to put it on my top 20 list, but I still want to defend it as pretty good. 
the movie is bookended with tragic moments. Uh, it starts right. with Janet Jackson at a drive-in with her boyfriend, played by Q-Tip, uh, and he gets murdered. And that is kind of the thing that kicks off the action, so to speak, in that she is uh, – her character is – she likes to write poetry. The poetry in this movie um, was uh, written by Maya Angelou, who actually appears in this movie as well. Though I do have to say that the poetry is kind of backseated in the movie. I thought, kind of thought it was going to be kind of front and center, even though they – there are moments where she's uh, there's voiceover of her reading the poetry. The fact that she's writing this amazing poetry isn't supposed to be like like her future. She's not going to become a poet. She's a hairdresser and seems completely content in that. Um, but the movie starts with this tragic uh, moment, and then at the end, Tupac finds that his cousin, who's like a brother of, of uh, to him, has been murdered in some street violence. Um, and that is supposed to, I guess, eventually we're supposed to think is going to lead to him embracing a musical career that his uh, cousin had started. It's strange that I find everything in between those moments to be a lot more engaging than those particular moments, particularly that that material at the end. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. I really like what you said about this being like a road movie, because you're right. The fact is, this is what is the strength of the movie, is that these characters become developed you know, as you would expect in a movie that's about a romance, they start hating each other. Tupac's character, Lucky, and Janet Jackson's character, Justice, they absolutely despise each other. They have completely different worldviews. She sees him as just, uh, uh, I guess, an asshole, really, but someone who's just trying to hit on her constantly while she's at her job. Uh, he sees her as uh, stuck up and a feminist, and uh, they just don't get along at all. But through this trip where they have these experiences and they're stopping and having these kind of mini quote-unquote adventures, you start to know more about them as characters and they start to bond a lot more as they go along. And I found that material to be incredibly endearing. Particularly, there's a sequence that takes place at a family reunion barbecue that I thought was so charming and so Magic. funny. It's like, it's actually, the for, for me, it's the best part of the movie. It is, I think, for me, by far the best part of the movie. Uh, and it's when I think about this movie in the future, it's what I'm going to think about. And that I, to me, it's like when this movie is working, that is the ideal way that it's working is in that sequence. And I wish there was more of that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, we know we have to get to a destination, so that's important. And of course we got to have all that stuff to kick things off. Um, but I wish there were a couple of more sequences that had that sort of life to them because that, that segment works so well. I think it's actually well, kind of the centerpiece. Well, I would argue that the the two sequences, that sequence and then the other event that they end up at that's more political. That those yeah, absolutely. Are the, those are the two ideological moments of this film. Yes. That that's because what what uh, what uh, Singleton does through this media, like these road trip movies are like slice of life movies where people get to see the diversity of America or the yes. diversity of their area. And so this is John Singleton being like, okay, here's what it's like. You know, here's a little taste of black life in LA. Now here, there's this, you know, we get the two, honestly, what I would say is the two sources of strength from a certain perspective in the black community, the family you know, the extended family, the way that families care for each other, the hospitality and the love they're in, and then yeah. the politics. And then they end up in a political... And I think it's very telling of Singleton to choose these two moments when things are actually good, you know? Um, and, and to then contrast these moments of tranquility, of the strength of the, the, of, of the uh, uh, 
black American family and the strength of this sort of uh, black activist tradition. Uh, and to contrast that with the utter turmoil between these four people that cannot figure out how to relate to each other. <laughs> and uh, eventually Tupac and Janet's care, you know, uh, uh, lucky and justice figure it out. But it's really clear in their relationship Tupac is uncomfortable being vulnerable, and that makes it difficult for him to relate to Justice. But right. Justice, similarly, is uncomfortable with seeing Tupac's character uh, lucky for who he really is, understanding his struggle, understanding the way that his masculinity is shaped by other forces. And once they see each other, which is really what the climax of the end is, is they finally understand each other. Then they can actually have a relationship. Now, the movie doesn't promise us a future for them or anything like that, but it just shows the way that them being able to see each other. And I think that is sort of the ideological stuff of it. The question for me became not all the melodrama that demonstrates the difficulties that black folks have and all folks. This is not just about black folks per se but he's he's focused on that community sure the melodrama he uses to highlight the tensions and the difficulties in that community it feels weird at times it's a little excessive at times and i and i and i and 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 in some ways you know one of the criticisms that we talked about for boys in the hood was its sentimentality and i think that if you don't like that sentimentality, poetic justice isn't going to work for you anymore no, than true. Boys in the Hood did because it's still there. And I think it's also in our, the movie we're going to talk about next. In fact, I'm wondering if this is going to be a theme of his movies as we move forward is no matter how gritty and real and even like political, both overtly and covertly he's willing to be, he's still a sentimental dude, man. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. still a certain amount of that in there. And in Poetic Justice, it doesn't ruin the movie for me, but I could see why some people might be off-put by it. I do think that outside of those two big set pieces, the road trip itself, I find... I found somewhat irritating at times, particularly because of the relationships between the two couples that are ongoing throughout it and how those evolve and particularly how those culminate. And, but we'll talk about that in just a little bit because that, that I don't think it, it hurts the movie to the extent that it becomes unwatchable or anything like that. It's just that when this movie is running on all cylinders, I think it's really, really great. And then there are kind of stretches of it where I was getting bored or I found the characters too irritating or I didn't really buy into their relationship. But one thing that does work in this movie, and I think this is somewhat controversial to say, is those two lead performances, and that's Tupac and Janet Jackson. Uh, I know Janet Jackson was an actress from a very early age. I know that Tupac is kind of renowned as as being very unnatural as an actor. But I will say that when you do read reviews for this movie, whether it be on Letterboxd or even from the time, there was a lot of criticism for their performances in this movie. And, and a lot of people who thought that they were just not great. I have to say, I was incredibly impressed by both performances in this movie. I don't I, know if... No, mm, yeah, please. I think anyone who thinks they were not great is probably a racist. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> I mean, just uh, like... I, I, I'm obviously kidding, y'all. Don't don't send us e mean emails. But I do think there's a, there's a certain sense in which they're trying to bring a, a amount of humanity to characters that are definitely set within... And, and it's, it's worth noting... Justice is not playing Janet Jackson. Yes. That if you've ever watched a Janet Jackson interview, if you've ever, you know, really experienced Janet Jackson outside of this movie, the way that she is in this film is not, for the most part, I mean, there's flourishes of her in it, but yeah. she's not playing Janet. No, she, she is. This is a full. 
three-dimensional performance that she is giving here. It, and I, it is it, it, honestly, it's not that she's unrecognizable. You're never going to mistake her for someone who's not right, Janet Jackson. Right. But the character that she's playing, I believed it entirely, even though it could not have been further removed than from the life experience of who Janet Jackson was at this time in particular. And I think the same is true for Tupac. I think when sure. people see this movie and they think like, oh, this is just Tupac like being himself. And I'm like, I don't think that's true, actually. I, I, I think if you really pay attention, this guy, I, there are moments that feel like him, you know, when he wants to express this guy sort of being loud, being out there. But I think Tupac played it down a lot for this role and really tried to play up the the fact that underneath his bluster, this guy is very sensitive, you know? And I'm not saying Tupac isn't sensitive, but just the the transformation from this character to every time I've seen an interview or an interaction with him, mm-hmm. even if he is in some sense playing a version of himself, it's a version that is new to people. And so, yeah, I, I saw a couple of people sort of say like, well, they're just there. They're not really doing anything. I just think those are people that are unwilling to or unable to see the few full humanity of these characters. And I think this is, this is an issue with, this is an issue I've noticed with uh, critics interacting with, uh, black films is this question of to what extent is having people talk the way that people actually talk off-putting to some critics right the it, it, again i'm not saying the dialogue is great in this movie there are definitely moments where i, I i'm like ah, this is hard right now but i also know like i think parts of this movie are also very realistic and i think that was important to john singleton so i think there's a bit of a conflict there of like how much i i, I don't know that all movies need to be sort of the equivalent of mumblecore where everyone's just sort of like making it up on the spot sure but which by the way is not a criticism i like mumblecore Me too. but uh but i do think that the idea that we need to take these characters and give them like grand over-the-top speeches every few minutes is like also not real and i think he's trying to thread that needle which is not an easy thing to do i don't think it's an easy thing to do in in my evaluation yeah it he kind of it's funny he kind of gets to the core of particularly with tupac who is uh, a performer that i've always had i felt again a little bit conflicted about um you know, the fact that, that he was involved with sexual assault and that, that I mean, he just feels like a person who has a lot of contradictions within himself. And on display in this movie are those contradictions. But beneath it all, in his music, in his performances, in his interviews, you can see that there is a, a conscientious spirit there and someone who has a sensitivity. And this movie is able to get to the core of that and really bring it out, which I think is pretty crucial to how we even see Tupac now in retrospect. A lot of it kind of is is nascent here in this movie. Um, and I think he does a really good job. I do think that it's kind of <laughs> – that they don't make him too sensitive. Do you know what I mean? Right. Where, where he, he, he softens – or he shows his softer side. But at the end of the movie, it's not like he's now this great guy that we think that their relationship is just going to be fine together. There's still going to be problems there. Even to the fact that when he apologizes, it's kind of a shitty apology. <laughs> Do you, I don't know if that came out to you. But when he's saying, like, he goes, I'm sorry about some things. I guess we're all sorry about some things. It's like, dude, like, you blamed her for the murder right. of your cousin. Uh, it, it, I don't know if the, the making up part at the end felt as earned as I was hoping it would be. But it's okay because at that point, there, but there's so much charm between these two characters that you really do want to see them kind of uh, find love within each other anyway. So that all still works for me. 
Uh, but I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in what you're saying about how critics view the performances in movies like this and why someone would watch this and think that Janet Jackson and Tupac are not giving good performances. When, when I watch it, I'm like, they're, like, they're really going for it and they're doing some, you know, <laughs> it's not like, it's not like you can see the effort on screen. The fact that it seems somewhat effortless is what makes it such a good performance. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I don't know why it's like I said. I I, I was kidding about accusing. I know I all know. these people of being racist, <laughs> but it is there is a part of me that like. Uh, I I also. You know, I mean, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Liam, but it's interesting. You know, you didn't see those criticisms for Ice Cube in Boys in the Hood, right, right? right? Those were universal. When he's playing that kind of thuggish character, right? No one, everyone's like, "Hey, that's a great performance from like a musician, right?" And here's someone who doesn't have a lot of acting experience. Here, when they're trying to be a little bit more nuanced and sensitive, again, th- not criticizing how that character is in Boys in the Hood. There is a lot of nuance there as well, but it's a very different character here. That's when the criticism seems to come in. I yeah, I don't know. I it just it seems weird to me because I think it's you know other than the scenes that we highlighted as being particularly magical, the other part of this movie that makes me still feel very good about it is those two characters. And that's not to say everyone else is bad, though I think we can talk a little bit about some of the other performances in a second here. <laughs> uh, I think, though, that the 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 consistently quality part of the film is Janet and Tupac, and I just think their performances really carry the movie, and then it's sort of hit or miss with some of the other folks. Well, let, let's talk about that here. So... In this mail truck, we have Tupac and Janet. They're half of what's happening. And then there's the other half, which is a a slightly more volatile couple occurring. Talk to me about this. And does that work for you? So we've got Regina King, who I think we've all come to finally acknowledge some, <laughs> you know, 30 years later is like, you know, a goddess on earth, like the true queen, whatever. But at this point, I don't think people knew her in the same way. And she's playing opposite Joe Tory as uh, so her character's name is Aisha. Joe Tory's character is uh, Chicago, big Chicago, they call him whatever. Um, so Regina King, I think, is given a difficult task because a lot of this movie she is playing a loud ignorant in some ways drunk Mm -hmm. character and she's playing opposite joe tory and for my money joe tory is not really great in this film i mean his role is very difficult as well also difficult but i feel like he is the same note Mm -hmm. most of the film which is I'm good at being loud and I'm good at delivering these lines believably because this is what I would say if it was me in this situation. <laughs> uh, and and so I don't feel like he has as much range as the people he's with and Regina King has to play off of him. And so some of the scenes that I think are supposed to be very dramatic between them don't always work, you know? Uh, and their argument is... Uh, you know, I, I I hinted earlier that I don't think all the script is strong, no. but I think the I think the issue with their stuff is that there are deeper things, I think more meaningful things that they could be arguing about. But would that be real? This is the argument these folks would really have with each right, other, right? Right. And it's the most annoying, yes. bummer argument you two people could have that culminates in actual violence, and so. 
and 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 to be fair, I think one of the most believable things about the film is that um, though it is very dramatic and very upsetting when Joe Toy's character hits uh, Regina King, it's also realistic that sh- her response is not to wilt, but right. to be like. I'm going to try to fight you back. You know what I mean? Sure. So sure. I, and I respect the movie for doing that because it, it wants you to view that moment as a bad moment. It's not trying to say these are two equals just getting into a fist fight. It's however, a really, it, oh yeah, no, please continue. However, they do want to show you that she's not going to just be like, Oh no. Oh my God. And Wilt, she's like trying to bring it back to him. You know what I mean? It's, it's a really interesting moment. I find those two characters very irritating in the movie. And I won't say it ruined the movie for me or anything like that. But I will say that where it went is not where I was expecting it to go. Uh, and when it culminates in that moment of violence, it's funny that we're talking about it as if as if time stands still when he hits her. It right. all builds to that moment. Right. And we kind of know what's coming. I wonder. I wonder how many people who watch this movie thought and I know I hate to say this I'm just I'm putting it out there because I'm curious more than anything else thought she deserved it I know that that I uh, believe me I don't think there's any circumstance where she would have deserved whatever that even means to be hit but the fact that in that sequence she's getting so personal with the uh things that she's saying to him and then it culminates in her saying that she cheated on him and talking about that he's not even a man and stuff like that. I I think you're right. I think the movie unequivocally says that this is a bad thing that is happening. But I also wonder if there were people who saw this at the time who were like, yeah, yeah, he struck out because she pushed him to that line. And I, I feel like the movie, because of how strong she goes with that dialogue, it it kind of skirts that line that it is incredibly believable that he would hit her. Yeah, I mean, I think it is trying to, it's not trying to, I think what the movie doesn't want to do is make Joe Torre a full monster. That's it, that's exactly Chicago's not a monster. The movie expects that there will be people watching it who identify with Chicago's response Yeah, and then still wants it to be clear that that was not an appropriate reaction because if he seems like a, full monster there are people watching who are going to be able to detach themselves and be like well you know i wouldn't be like that guy you know so i think the film wants to have her be as irritating and as cruel as possible to still make that moment dramatic enough that maybe someone watching it is going to have to question you know, is this okay? How do I feel? You know what I mean? We, you know, we talked about the misogyny in some of the language in Boys in the Hood, and that's still on display between these two characters, uh, but Chicago and uh, and Lucky in this movie. But in how in Boys in the Hood, actually, it kind of works in the same way. It kind of feels more like bluster than anything else because they're constantly saying to each other, "It's like you got to keep your bitch in check," that sort of thing, right? And that's an exact quote. That's what they say in the movie. Um, but when it comes down to it. It's it it that feels like no you know that's just the way that we talk to each other but that isn't how we see the world and this is a female centered movie I mean Janet Jackson is the main character in this right. movie everything is right. meant to support her and that's very specific you know th- th- John Singleton really wanted this to be a movie about a black woman and how black women see the world the fact that they have this 
um, barbershop uh, or hairdressing salon at the beginning where she, you know, is surrounded by other strong black women. I think that's really core to what this movie is all about. But these characters still talk with the language that that is is really at odds with the softness that we see, particularly in Lucky's character. Uh, so when it culminates in this moment of male on female violence, it feels like that's kind of an expression of some of the language they had already been using. I agree. I don't. I don't know. I again, this is probably part of our fault that we haven't done enough research on John Singleton to know his full opinion. Because let's let's make something really clear. At the time, this is something that people might not know if you were not uh, around at the time. At the time in hip hop, the word uh, "bitch," which I I don't find, use it. I I, th- I find, find it, it really uncomfortable to even use the word. Yeah, that word had replaced the word "woman" or girl or lady in almost all of hip hop and this was a live conversation a real argument because in a lot of hip hop the n-word had replaced all references to men and uh you know bitch had replaced all references to women in fact i kind of just want to say the b-word for now on because it makes me really uncomfortable to say sorry if that makes me a wuss guys but i just really don't like saying it um the point being is that now I think people, anyone listening already knows that we're wusses. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, uh, now I think it that seems weird, right? To, that that's a thing. But at the time, that was a real conversation in hip hop, you know. Yeah. And there were full songs about it, you know. Uh, in fact, famously, Ice T around this time had that song about how, uh, uh, you know, the 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 b word doesn't just describe women; it also describes men. Which is, you know, was kind of controversial at the time, and what you know, what I mean. So, sure. All that to say, I think, um, I think, uh, for us to say what is going on in the use of that word and how does it play into this violence, I would like to know what John Singleton actually thought about that because uh, we could we could make assumptions in both directions on it. Maybe he did think that was very bad and it's something he wanted to to be a part of ending maybe he didn't and he was just representing the you know what he saw as the reality whatever but in 2020 it sounds crazy that we're saying well this is actually a live political issue because for the most part that word has become either a weapon for some people or just something uncomfortable that you try to avoid because we all kind of acknowledge whatever and at the time suggesting you can't use that word for women wasn't just politicized it was racialized yes that was seen as white people Mm. shit and if you brought it up you were kind of conceding to the white part of political correctness you know that political correctness was being weaponized against black culture mm -hmm. and you were giving into it by criticizing the use of that word yeah, I, I was trying to be very careful in how I described my reaction to it because it is a word that I don't like saying or using. Uh, and But I also think that yeah, – and I also think contextually it's very realistic that the, these characters are using oh, that word. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah and, and I think that, that it's important to at least acknowledge that, that some of the language in this – you know, we talked about things not aging well. Well, they don't – it's not about aging necessarily. It's about putting these characters in a place and time where it makes them feel three-dimensional and real, which is what it does. Now, not all the dialogue in this movie is like that. I do think there is some corny stuff in there. It's an interesting conversation to have that 
I feel not entirely qualified to have, so I'm glad I have someone to bounce these ideas off of. If I'm getting this completely wrong, folks, if I'm saying things that you find offensive, please let me know. I'm not looking out here to uh, reinforce my opinion as being the right opinion. I'm just talking about my responses to seeing these characters have these conversations in the movie proper. Now, Liam, I want to talk about the ending of this movie because I will say, uh, and now I'm not talking about the ending where Tupac and Janet Jackson get back together. I'm speaking specifically of when they arrive in Oakland and we get the other bookended tragedy in this movie. They arrive and there's already police everywhere. Uh, Tupac goes in to see his aunt and his cousin and they're not at home and he discovers that his cousin has been shot. Now, his cousin is a aspiring musician. His response to this, and again, he's very upset, he's really freaked out by everything that's happening, is to blame Janet Jackson's character, because they've already connected now romantically, that he blames her for making him late because he could have stopped this from happening. Now, whether that's logical or not, I mean, we know how people get in into these kind of intense situations. The other thing I want to talk about, though, is we see him have a conversation with his aunt and uncle and his his like extended family the the i don't know if it's a, a couple of days later or the next day it seems like it's supposed to be very soon after and they have this very uncomfortable conversation about what they're going to do with the recording equipment that his cousin had and he convinces the, them to give him that recording equipment all of that stuff seems really I know I get it that it's supposed to be setting up the that that this is a guy who who wants to do more with his life than just be a um a male worker, not that there's anything wrong with that, that he wants to be involved in music and it's something that he aspires to, but I thought I found the conversation around the table uncomfortable. I found the decision making uncomfortable. I found the fact that he he introduces it to these people by saying that, you know, I know this isn't something that you care about right now and you're not thinking about it right now, but and then he brings it up it all seems really strange to me. How did that play for you, Liam? Oh, um, the so the larger issue of it, I'm actually fine with in the sense of like he's gonna he's gonna continue on this this project. He promises he's, them that he's gonna do something with the music yeah, yeah, that his yeah. cousin had already made, which I think I'm, is an importance, a legacy. I'm totally comfortable with that. The way he presents it at the table is so fucked up, and I, <laughs> it rubbed me the wrong. Way. It was the one moment. There's a couple of moments where there, we've talked about how the script isn't magic. There's issues. There's lines that are seem silly or dumb or don't really work. The only part of the script that I straight up am like, this isn't good, is that conversation at the table where he's just like. There, he was like, so what are you guys going to do with that equipment? And they're like, I don't know. I guess we're going to sell it. Because that's what you do when someone dies. Yeah. When someone dies, you unfortunately sell their stuff or you give it away to people. And his response, rather than saying, yo, I get that, but you know, uh, can I have it, please? Like, There's a way to play that scene that seems like grateful. He is enraged that they're going to yeah. sell this uh, very expensive, very nice equipment to like live their lives and he berates and belittles them into giving him the equipment because that's what his cousin would really want. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that's what his cousin really want, I actually believe makes sense. I mean, he's going on these mail runs just so he can go record in one night with his cousin. Like that's like the point of the trip. So I'm all for that. The actual written dialogue is so off-putting, it took me out of the movie for that whole scene, where I was like, who decided that angry Tupac was what they needed for this scene? Because <laughs> it just doesn't work. No uncle would be like, 
you know what? Your enraged belittling of me convinced me. Have all this supremely expensive equipment. Take it right now. Get it out of the house. Oh, fuck that, man. Like, that would not have worked in that way. He he could have easily played the same scene being very much like, you know, I don't want to, you know, I know it's expensive, whatever. I just really feel inspired to continue his, you know, legacy. All yeah, this stuff. Absolutely. There's all this heartfelt stuff he could have said. And instead, he gave us the angry Tupac, which again, that work. I actually think. Uh, going back to the idea that he blames her and people, whatever. I actually think that kind of worked. It's heartbreaking, uh, and it's, it's a little. It's a. It little is corny. realistic in people like like yeah. that are dealing with grief and yeah. just kind of of of. And we've seen him as as a character that can make bad decisions on yeah. the spur of the moment. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, it's realistic. I it's mean, just, it's a it's a little corny only that you know it's not going to last. Like the yeah. whole scene, you're going. There's no way they're going to get. And and also it 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 in a lot of romantic movies they wouldn't go that far you know in terms of them splitting apart where he's basically blaming her for the murder of his cousin yeah but i mean i think in that moment the movie is very clear in uh transmitting that he is he is uh displacing his guilt onto her yeah and i think singleton would say like well a lot of a lot of uh, problematic relationships are about one person displacing their own guilt onto the other person. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that all works. But uh, the the question of that scene with the family and then now he's just going to drive off with all this equipment, which it, uh, just so people remember, this is thousands. Of, you know, now, you know, we do a podcast with maybe a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff. You know sure. what I mean? The uh, the kind of equipment that he's just taking the next day, like the body's only just gotten cold and he's walking off with all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment that he's just walking away with because he was mean at breakfast. It just doesn't work, really. It's the one part of the movie that I think they really didn't give a fuck about this part. They just wanted to get it done. There is some lip service to the fact that like he and his cousin were like brothers and that this is a very, very close family but because we never see that beforehand it really does seem like it's like your son was killed yesterday you can barely function as a family unit right now because you're also traumatized by it by the way can i take literally the thing that he spent all of his money on with me when i go and you know who knows when the next time you might even see me again uh but at least at least you are left with the idea that he feels a responsibility to do something with that music and that's going well to and even him. then if he had said it like i'm so sorry i know this is crazy but but instead he's like how the fuck dare you not yeah. just assume i'm gonna take this i stuff. know that's what's weird about it for sure it is interesting by the way that this movie we don't see tupac rap in this movie at all i mean we see him we know that he writes rap lyrics or works on it but it's not like there's a moment where he's with this this uh equipment and starts to rap or there's a suggestion he in the whole movie the idea is that his cousin is a more talented musician than he is and that he actually looks up to him and and aspires to be like that so i mean it's i I guess it shouldn't be weird to me that he's giving a performance as as not just a rapper as if that is the only character he could play but as considering what he was seen as at the time uh, it's it's kind of interesting that they decide to make him a less talented or at least seemingly less talented than other people that he's aware of. Well, I think there. I think one of the sh- things that we're going to talk about consistently through these John Singleton movies is his use of musicians in these films and how sure. he decides to utilize them. And um, one could argue, depending on how you view Ice Cube, that his magic pill is getting them to play against type. 
And some people would argue, well, that doesn't work with Ice Cube. But I think the past whatever years, 40 years of Ice Cube in the public has let us know that Ice Cube is actually a pretty uh, multifaceted personality, you know? And so getting him to play this guy was not getting him to play himself. It was getting him to play against type. And exactly. even with Janet Jackson, yes, she writes lyrics as a singer, but the character of justice is not like janet jackson and in our next movie which man we spent a lot of time on this movie um (laughs) in our next movie similarly andre is certainly not playing andre 3000 or any fucking version of andre 3000 that i'm familiar with and so getting them to play against their public persona i think is actually a really smart move and a lesser director would be like well i got tupac here might as well have him rap a couple times exactly so stupid you don't you don't need that we don't need to see tupac rapping that's that's just ridiculous I uh, I just want to put my final thoughts together on Poetic Justice. It's a movie that I feel somewhat conflicted about simply because it didn't all work for me. Uh, though I think the, the core of it, those two performances, their relationship building and developing, and particularly those two uh, major set pieces, them going to the barbecue, them going to the fair, I think those work so well that they carry some of the lesser moments of the movie and some of the quote-unquote more irritating parts for me so i do think it's a worthwhile movie i do think it's a really interesting evolution from boys in the hood and it makes me excited to see what we're going to continue to see in the earlier part of john singleton's career with that said we are now going to move to one of the later parts of his career with 2005's four brothers an all-star crime revenge movie uh certainly a very different subject matter anything else to say about poetic justice before we finish up liam yeah, I mean, I think I think there is something similar to Boys in the Hood going on in that the road trip movie that is kind of about nothing or is just kind of melodramatic, uh, I would argue before Poetic Justice is for white people for mm. the most part. And so for him having a movie this black that is not about, although he, you know, inevitably includes the tragedy of death and gun violence or whatever that's not what the movie is overall about and i think that's a decision to be made at this time you know what i mean especially following up on on boys in the hood he's not just making a statement about his own abilities as a director he's making a statement about the expansion and limitations of telling stories within Mm. that milieu you know and using the the credibility you had from boys in the hood to to expand the type of stories that you can tell uh, with black casts. Uh, right. and, and I think that's something that we're still, it still reverberates through the films that we see now. When we return, let's talk about 2005's Four Brothers. The truth comes with a price. Keep knocking on the devil's door long enough, somebody gonna answer you. Jack! Y'all just gonna shoot up the whole town because y'all mad? Why not? Who are you protecting? Mark Wahlberg, Tyrese Gibson, Andre Benjamin, Garrett Hedlund. Just want to talk to him. My brother. These are my brothers. Paramount Pictures presents... We still family, right? We're a real family. Four brothers. I just wanted to talk! Ah! Let's go talk to him now. When their adoptive mother is gunned down in a store robbery, the four brothers investigate the murder for themselves and look for the killers, but not all is what it seems. That is 2005's 
Four Brothers, uh, shot by John Singleton and written by David Elliott and Paul Lovett, who both uh, worked on G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. So you know you're getting some great dialogue here. Uh, a film that takes place in Detroit, though, was shot in uh, both Detroit and Toronto, which was actually uh, pretty, and the greater Toronto area, which is kind of recognizable for me as someone who lives in this area. Uh, really quite an amazing cast, including, and we'll be talking about this in a little bit, uh, the four brothers are Mark Wahlberg. Tyrese Gibson, Andre Benjamin, Andre 3000, uh, and Garrett Hedlund. Uh, we also have Terrence Howard in the cast, Josh Charles, Sofia uh, Vergara, uh, and Chuetel Ejiofor is here as the villain, Victor Sweet, as well. Also, some other familiar faces in the cast. We might get to that in just a little bit. Uh, this was another first-time watch for me. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do this series is because I had not seen many of the films in the career of John Singleton. Uh, this is one that I, I remember when it came out. I don't remember having much interest for it. Mark Wahlberg is a actor that I don't particularly like in a lot of roles, and just him being in this probably put it in a category in my brain of a lot of the different kind of generic action movies that Mark Wahlberg uh, was making at the time and has made since. So I have to say I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie a little bit, but though I shouldn't, when I look at that cast, of course I'm going to enjoy seeing these performers work together, but I do like that there's a rawness to this movie that you do not see in a lot of action movies. It felt like a throwback to the films of the 70s. Uh, I, I know that you think uh, you were thinking black exploitation, and very rightfully so. I think that's a very intentional thing. I was also thinking like British revenge movies like Get Carter. Uh, th- this is a, a movie that has a very kind of slick plot that it revolves around. It is, of course, also a semi-remake of the John Wayne movie, The Sons of Katie Elder, which has a very similar plot. I have not seen that movie, so I can't speak to how uh, dedicated it is to what happens in those plot points. But as a movie, as a slick, but also somewhat raw action movie, I have to say I came away pretty impressed by it. Liam, what do you think of Four Brothers? You know, when it came out, I was pretty down. Um, I was not yet turned on Mark Wahlberg. And I just remember thinking, you know, I didn't rewatch it, but I saw it pretty quickly after it came out and thought, yeah, it was fun. It was a fun time. Interesting story. Some cool performances. I like the action. It works. On rewatch, I don't think it's a very good movie. I don't think it's deserving of what I am surprised to find is like a lot of people don't like this movie in a way that's kind of intense. Hmm. Uh, but for me, I think it's mostly pretty good. I just was struck by how much I don't like Mark Wahlberg in this role and how the parts of the movie that to me feel like they don't exactly work. They tend to focus on Mark Wahlberg uh, and his portrayal of this character. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that the other three brothers are amazing, but I think they're pretty strong. And yeah. I think that the char- the way his character is supposed to be would be better with a different actor than Mark there, Wahlberg. I, I do think, Liam, that part of the problem about this performance is that he's Mark Wahlberg. Uh, and not, not that whatever your feelings are on Mark Wahlberg you bring with you, though you will to some extent, but that because he's a big star that they won't let him be as unlikable and ruthless as this character probably should be, and that Mark Wahlberg could probably play a little bit better because I find him an incredibly unlikable person. Right, and I think they they he what's crazy to me is he's consistently doing unlikable things and the movie is presenting it like he's like kind of heroic and charming. And he's a dickhead in the movie and yes. it really bums me out. Like the the constant fights with um, 
with uh, Sofia Vergara, right? Mm-hmm. He's being racist. It's not cute. It's like yeah. not fun. And it's unjustified. It's not clear. I guess we're supposed to assume that the history between Sophie and Angel, which is uh, Tyrese's character, that mm-hmm. there's some like checkered history that's coloring his response to her. But we don't get any of that narrative. So all we see is him being mean to a lady who wants to fuck his brother. Doesn't it seem like this movie is missing a flashback sequence of them as kids? Of quite a, it feels like not just one. I, I, granted, I don't know that the movie needs to be any longer. Um, no, and I, it is. Yeah. And and I'm not saying that it's too long either. I think it's the right length, and I don't think the pacing is really off in it, which is all credit to John Singleton. But um, but I do kind of feel like, even though I don't want it to be longer, maybe it would be a little better longer uh, because we'd get some idea of their interaction like their relationships you know what i mean it's it's just kind of a strange i mean i i picture this movie with a bunch of different flashbacks and you're right maybe that wouldn't work but just to kind of reinforce what these relationships are so this movie starts with the murder of their mother and you know this movie's called four brothers this was a woman who basically um was a foster parent who brought all of these different children with uh, difficult backgrounds into her home, and they would all go on to foster families but um, that, that would adopt them. But there are these four kids who I guess were unadoptable uh, because they were so rough, and she decided to adopt them herself and raise them as four brothers. They were raised – they make it very clear. These are still, for the most part – pretty bad guys, you know, in the sense that they're still involved in in crime, which is, which I actually, I like that this movie takes a fairly judgment-free look at, but when the police are talking about them, it's like, oh, they're bad, but they would have been so much worse if she didn't give them this kind of moral center. So these guys are spread out throughout the country or maybe the world, and they come back for the funeral, and they, I mean, I love that conceit, this idea that they were, these are tough Rough characters who come back together for this funeral and decide we are going to find who killed our mother. And, of course, it goes deeper than just a random incident. and It ends up involved with corruption in the police and, you know, this major crime boss and all that. And that, to me, that's what feels like kind of a throwback element. And it's the thing I most enjoyed is how lean that kind of concept is. It does get kind of bloated as it goes along because, of course, we got to spend time with the crime boss and find out more about him. But even that does kind of play off. And even the the union stuff, knowing that Andre uh, 3000's character was like a union guy and that he has developed relationship with kind of the, the, the criminal element in this city because he's really intimately knowledgeable of it. I think a lot of that works really well. I was surprised at how much kind of those plot elements work, though I do have to say... This movie gets twisty in a way that movies in 2005 usually got twisty. They wouldn't trust it to just remain as lean as it should have been. And some of those twists got to be a bit much once you're like almost two hours into the movie. I, oh, I'm i okay with all of the plot twistiness that is the background plot twistiness. I think the big plan at the end starts to move this movie into something a little corny yes Uh, the first time i watched it i thought it was great i thought it was like a lot of fun on second watch the sort of uh you'll excuse the uh the phrase the ocean's 11 of it all (laughs) let's show you what's going on but not tell you the full story and then here's the big reveal whoa it's just a little too like yo we're so fucking smart you know what i mean yeah 
I, and on paper, I don't think it's bad. If you if you pitch me this is what's happening in the room, I'm okay with it. It's just the way it played out felt corny to me. Um, but overall, that's kind of my feeling on the whole movie. I, I actually bet if I read this script, which is amazing because, as we sort of pointed out, the people who wrote this movie are not – they don't have a golden track record. <laughs> but I bet the narrative is actually very good because if I think about it abstractly, it all works for me in a way that like makes me very happy. I think, again, the watching of it, it – alternates between good and stupid and all the parts that are stupid for me is Mark Wahlberg's performance Hmm. he just really makes the movie and and I would say ruins the movie for me except for I still mostly enjoy the film you know if someone was like if someone's like oh that movie's okay but I don't love it I'm okay with that but if someone wants to tell me I hate that movie I'm actually a little not into that like I think it's pretty good uh but just something about Wahlberg just rubs me the wrong way I I think I like Mark Wahlberg in this movie more than you, which is weird to say after already criticizing him, mostly because he is still an unrepentant asshole in it. So he's still playing, you know, to his strengths, so to speak. I think The Departed sort of ruined Mark Wahlberg in the sense that he they found the role that he was perfect for in that movie. And now he's tried to play that role in almost everything else some variation on it. And when he ever gets away from that, he's terrible. So it's probably a good thing he stays in his wheelhouse, but that wheelhouse is still incredibly restrictive if you're supposed to be a good or likable person. In this movie, the problem with Mark Wahlberg being in it is that this is an ensemble and he's a bigger star than everybody else. So they make well, the movie focus more on him. And that's my issue, right? Is that the character, he's not strong in this role. And I don't know if that's the writing or his performance, but I feel like it's his performance. And that um, he tries to, he is eclipsing the other people, and yet his character is not interesting enough to be doing that. And even in the scenes where he's with his other brothers, he he just doesn't work for me. I just think someone who was more menacing or if they went the other direction and made it more charming then maybe it could work but for me it just he continued to bum me out the whole movie at like a not just like his presence but at a narrative level the character he is playing doesn't work for this movie yeah yeah and especially knowing that a lot of his dialogue was apparently improvised which is actually not hard to believe when you hear some of the incredibly racist and homophobic things that come out of his mouth in this movie. Again, I don't want to spend too much time, even though, look, there's a lot of Mark Wahlberg in this movie, and your ability to accept that is going to affect your ability to enjoy this movie. I want to get back to something else you were saying about the John Singleton's use of musicians in his film, going right back, uh, his films, I should say, going right back to Boys in the Hood with uh, the use of Ice Cube. We just talked about Poetic Justice with both Tupac and Janet Jackson, even though Janet Jackson had a lot more acting experience than some of those other people we talked about. Here we have Andre 3000 from Outcast as one of the leads in this movie, even though he doesn't get quite as much screen time as the other three brothers, at least for the first half of the movie. How do you think he acquits himself here, Leah? I think he's great. I think he... Um, it's very possible that maybe this is who Andre Benjamin really is, is this <laughs> soft-spoken fatherly type, but he certainly <laughs> is at least playing against his public persona in a way that I found very charming. Now, um, At the very least, being in a committed marriage doesn't seem like something that... <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> forever, ever, forever. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> oh man, don't get me started on how Andre Be- uh, Andre Three Thousand has made a career out of letting us know that he can't stay committed to anyone. <laughs> it's like three songs at least. I remember there was a period where, like, every interview he used to be like, "Oh yeah, no, that's not for me." <laughs> Oh my god. Um anyways, the point here is that he's playing against our perceptions of him, against the type that he is like his public persona, and he's strong. Um I think that I don't I don't know that I would argue he's the most naturalistic a- a- actor, but this film does not need that. If he was giving us the sort of soft-spoken natural performance that I think Tupac was going for in Poetic Justice in this movie, it would not work. This is a genre film. These are I mean Part of the problem here is that Mark Wahlberg is chewing the scenery as much as he can, and that is not a good look for him. Uh, Andre Benjamin, I think, is a little over the top in his goofiness, but it really works in the movie uh, and is really strong. And I, you know, I don't even remember him in Be Cool. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. not something that it sticks in my mind. But if you talk to me about Andre Benjamin as an actor. How about that Jimi Hendrix biofic? Oh, yeah. <laughs> But if you talk to me about Andre Benjamin as an actor, this is what I'm thinking of, actually. This is the yeah. first thing I saw him in where I thought, mm-hmm. oh, okay, sure. Because he is this he he embodies this character in a way that works for this movie. It's also uh unique how they portray this character because he avoids a lot of the rough stuff in the first half of the movie. And we know that he's, you know, he's running a business, he has a family, and that is the reason he gives. He's not, you know, even the cops at the beginning say that like he's the good one of the brothers. So we understand why he's avoiding, you know, shooting people in the head, that sort of thing. But it also makes him questionable because they start suspecting in the movie that he's involved with some criminal activity that might have actually connected directly to their mother getting killed. And that is something they try to put out in the movie and make him suspect. And I think that because he does not have a... He has a very likable presence, but he's sort of an unknown quantity that in this movie you can sort of believe that they might go in that direction. I mean, if this was a worse movie, maybe they would have went in that direction. That he, you know, he, that despite the fact that we're supposed to believe that they absolutely adored their mother and that she raised them and, and he's supposed to be the good one, that somehow he was involved in her death. This is a spoiler, by the way. Apologies to anyone who hasn't seen Four Brothers. He's not. This is uh, He is involved in some shady business, but that's just the reality of living in Detroit where if you want to try to run a business and uh, and work around the local crime element he's just trying to maneuver around that considering that he's been financially supporting his mother for i guess the entirety of their adult lives well yeah exactly that's the thing i wanted to highlight is this is one of those opportunities and you know if this was in the script like highlighted this aspect in the script then big respect for these writers because it's something people don't even acknowledge but as the reliable character He's the one who actually is living the adult life, yeah, taking exactly. care of their mom, and so that is actually a really important moment for him to say, like, "Wait, I'm actually the, the reason you suspect me is because I'm the one who's actually taking care of mom while yeah. you guys are off being assholes." Yeah. So, like, I actually found that moment again. I'm not saying this movie needed a lot of uh, emotional, believable moments. Like, that's not really the movie's not really about their character development per se. But that moment was for real. And it was, yeah. for me, one of the most human moments of the movie. Yeah. No, I think he's good. I think he's really strong in this. Uh, I think that uh, I'd like to see him get a few more roles that allowed him to stretch outside of the persona that I have of him. But the very fact that he is so believable here, I think, is a, is a strong reflection of his abilities as an actor. Very charming guy, anyway. Um, the other thing that I already kind of referred to it here, Liam, is that this movie doesn't take a strong moral 
uh, condemnation of the actions of these guys who are openly murdering people <laughs> in an attempt to find out who was involved in their mother's uh, their own mother's murder. And as they they kind of go deeper and deeper, I mean, they torture people, they threaten to set people on fire. Like these are rough dudes, and that's one of the things that I do like about the ending of the movie, where it's just like it. The, the police are seen as adversarial um, to a... But this is all about them trying to get away with murder, basically. Murdering, you know, do, this is about vigilante justice and they get away with it. And that's, the movie says, that's okay. Which is a, really at odds from the kind of movies that you saw in the 80s where someone still had to pay. I mean, they don't come out of it as, uh, and that's another thing I like about it. And it's kind of at odds with a lot of 70s exploitation. They didn't make any big score out of this. They don't come out of this as rich. If anything, they they got less at the end than they had at the beginning by a pretty significant amount. But this movie doesn't doesn't have the judgment that you sometimes see kind of laid on a lot of mainstream revenge movies. I mean, I I personally prefer revenge movies where the revenge doesn't work out because revenge is a bad idea. Right. However, what I do like about this movie is the other aspect of it which is like the normalization of the fact that these people are criminals yes because like yeah of course they are you know what i mean like i i don't know i just think the the so, this is, so, sorry to interrupt but it goes back to what i was saying about like a crime movie like get carter or like a british crime movie where it's yeah. like in another context you'd hate this guy and these guys you, they've done shit that would make you really angry if you knew more about their background. You know that they're criminals, and they've done criminal shit that isn't good. But in this context, because their their goal is more noble, that then you support them in it, right? But you know, and in, on a wider scale, these are bad dudes. I think this is partly why I don't like fucking Wahlberg in this role because his his whole thing is from top to bottom that he's just an asshole. You know what I mean? Like it, he it's. It would. There's a way to do this character where you don't think, well, that dude is just a guy who likes to hurt people and yes. doesn't care about other people. Uh, or if you're gonna do that character, to not try to make him like the funny center of the movie. You know, it's 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 just unfortunate for me that the movie ends up being, uh, you know, um, uh, dickhead Marky Mark and his accomplices. How about this? Let me give this as a as a idea. What if you swap out Chwetel Ejiofor for Mark Wahlberg in this movie? You switch those two roles around. Is it a better movie? Oh, perfect. It's a perfect movie. Right? It's it's actually a kick-ass. I mean, look, I, whatever happened to our man Ejiofor? Like, what, I, I just feel like, I, I, where, where did he go? Because... <laughs> I love I love him. I love him in this role. I love him in serious roles. I love I love him. And I don't know what has happened to him. I just feel like we haven't seen him for a while. And this movie reminded me of that, you know, again, it's not one of his most dramatic, emotional, whatever roles. He's just a, a tremendous piece of shit in this movie. Liam, but, oh man, if you want to know I where I he is, him. he's doing the voice of Dr. Watson in Sherlock Gnomes from 2018. Yeah, no, fuck that. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, man. What happened to our man? Because it, it went up from here, right? I'm not suggesting that Four Brothers was the height of his career. But this is a... Anyone watching this movie who thinks like, well, that guy doesn't have a future is clearly wrong, right? <laughs> like he's doing a lot with a very stupid role. There's no reason for this role to stand out and i think he brings a lot of menace to it in a way that i think is very strong but i think you're right 
make that role less significant and have it be dumbass Wahlberg, put him in Wahlberg's role, this is a much better movie. This yeah, is actually right? a movie that I would rewatch on a regular basis. <laughs> you know, I always forget how young Chuenel Ejiofor is. You know, he's he's only two years older than you are. Um, and, I and, know, and yet yeah. his life is over. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. I wanted to bring that up just briefly because I didn't bring it up during talking about Poetic Justice that Tupac was in his early 20s when that movie was made, like really early 20s. And you had Ice Cube, who was very young in Boys in the Hood as well, that John Singleton can really ring out these strong performances from very young actors. Again, not that Chiwetel Ejiofor was so young here, and he was also very experienced at this point, but he was certainly a lot younger than I thought he was. He can play older, that's for sure. He doesn't Um, seem, what is he, like 28 in this role maybe that's right yeah 27 28 something like that yeah so he doesn't he seems like a why a bit of a wizened person not like a hothead 28 year old so i mean there isn't a lot else to say i just want to talk quickly about the action sequences in this because this is an action movie uh i do think that they're they kind of run hot and cold i love the car chase in this movie that takes place during a blizzard some of the effects in it are not great but i think overall it's kind of a unique way to do a car chase um, and I kind of feels out of control in a way that I really like. But then you have this kind of fist fight on an on on uh, uh, the middle of a frozen lake at the end of the movie, which I think is super cheesy and is it's so silly because it it takes something that is personal amongst this ensemble and makes it a one on one thing. And even if you think about this one on one thing for one second, where you already have a bad guy who is completely fucked no matter what happens it's not like if he wins this fist fight they're just going to be like well you won i guess you get to go uh it's just this extremely it, it makes their mother's death about mark Wahlberg's dick yes that's what and that's the issue with the whole movie is that all the times that it could be about justice or revenge i think in multiple scenes mark Wahlberg makes the death of their mother about his dick i mean think and about I him don't co- like it think about him coming out of the snow like coming out of the white uh-ness uh, at the end of the movie so he can have that fist fight he is then the focus of the entire movie in a way that none of his brothers become the focus in right. this movie and right. this becomes a Mark Wahlberg movie instead of a movie about four brothers and yeah I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head which is whenever this movie moves away from what its title is suggesting it's supposed to be is when it's at its weakest well and I think because he does take up so much space it makes Garrett Hedlund's character's death a little dumb. It's yes. a little corny because Garrett Hedlund's character, Jack Mercer, hasn't been enough of a character for his death to be anything but it, it feels almost like a red shirt death. Mm. You know what I mean? It, it, it It's like, oh, of course he's going to get it. Whereas if, you know, there had been less oxygen taken up by Bobby and a more chance for Jack to be a real human, then when he passes it's an emotional moment and it's still a little emotional in the movie, but it's not nearly what it could be. Yeah, no, I agree with that a hundred percent. Now it overall, I think Ford brothers is actually a lot more worthwhile than I was expecting it to be. It is hobbled slightly uh, by Mark Wahlberg's performance. Hey, if you're a big Wahlberg fan, which it, you know, there are lots of them out there, then you might Weird. like that this even more. But I do think that uh, this works because of the supporting performances. Also, I should mention uh, since we haven't talked about it, Poetic Justice is a very female-centered movie in a lot of ways. This movie backgrounds the female characters to uh, an almost comical extent. 
not only That's because fair. of the language that Mark Wahlberg uses towards Sofia Vergara's character, uh, Taraji P. Henson's in this movie as well. She gets almost no screen time at all. Uh, and those are basically the only two female characters in the entire movie. Yeah, that is a definite. I mean, going into a movie called Four Brothers and knowing sort of who was in it, I was expecting a very male-heavy movie. But considering that the, uh, you know, the animating thing is their mom, yeah, uh, it's weird that there are no other strong women, and even their mom gets kind of relegated to like a few scenes of her being charming and and tough. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, would you recommend it? Would you recommend this movie? It certainly feels more representative of. John Singleton then abduction did, but it also still feels like him in a Hollywood mode that doesn't have a lot of his personal interest on display uh, outside of, you know, maybe the brotherhood of the the people at its core. I think it does only in the fact that like it's, you know, two, it's 2005, you know what I mean? And when this movie came out and uh, if it wasn't for Tarantino, is anyone paying homage to that 70s stuff in 2005? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is Singleton. You know, it's it, it's interesting we paired it with Poetic Justice because both these movies feel like homages to other kind of movies to me. Mm. And I find that interesting. So, yeah, I recommend it for that s- sense. But with the warning of if you find Mark Wahlberg intolerable, you will not enjoy this movie. If you <laughs> if you can put up with him or if you actually like him, then you should probably see it. I think, you know, it, it, it would appeal to people, even people who find him frustrating but aren't a hundred percent bummed on him uh i'd like to see a version of this movie written by john singleton as opposed to just i agree with that too so that is four brothers in 2005 uh i think both uh, of us have uh, mixed to positive feelings on both of the movies i think you're more positive on poetic justice than i am and i'm a little more positive on four brothers but i'm still extremely excited and interested to see what else uh, what else is to come on this series and what else is to come on the next episode is 1995's Higher Learning and 2003's Too Fast, Too Furious. Oh, God. <laughs> One of these I know that I hate. So, <laughs> uh, Once again, <laughs> I have seen Too Fast, Too Furious, uh, but it was a very long time ago, and uh, I have actually not seen any of the rest of the Fast and the Furious series. This will probably be an opportunity for me to revisit the first one uh, before the next episode. And I have seen Higher Learning, but that probably would have been in 1995. So contextually, I don't know how I'm going to respond to these two movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a really strong opinion on one of them. And the other one, I don't think I've ever seen. Well, we're going to see him again soon. On the next episode of this running the filmography. We're going to be taking a look at 95's Higher Learning and 2003's Too Fast, Too Furious. Liam, if people want to check out more podcasts featuring the both of us, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can go to the Cinema Smorgasbord website to see uh, uh, all of our episodes. They can also check out every new episode at cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. As well as a whole family of podcasts, a number of which I'm also on. And, uh, you know, (laughs) Maybe Doug will be on one at some point. Who knows? We'll see what I happens. I don't know. I've never been invited, uh, but so there's, who knows? There's also, <laughs> stop. there's also other great podcasts you can check out there, as well as some great writing and uh, even some merch. So go on over to cinepunks.com. You can also find Cinema Smorgasbord 
on uh, Twitter, Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. You can also find Cinepunks on Twitter, uh, spelled the same. And Cinepunks is on Instagram and Facebook as well, all spelled C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. You can also follow me on Twitter, which I don't recommend, uh, Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. And you can follow Doug on Twitter. Doug, how do they follow you on Twitter? That is at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E. And yeah, we'd always appreciate, of course, you checking out other Cinema Smorgasbord podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's all linked at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Liam, with all that said, I think it's time for us to close the book on these two John Singleton films. We'll be back again with another two John Singleton classics very soon. Good night, everybody. Night-night. Every second, every minute, man, I swear that she can get it. Say if you a bad bitch, put your hands up high, hands up high, hands up high. Tell them dim the lights down right now. Put me in the mood. I'm talking about dark moon perfume. Go, go. I recognize your fragrance. Hold up, you ain't never gotta say shit. Uh, and I know you taste this a little bit. Mmm, high maintenance. Uh, everybody else basic. You live life on an everyday basis with poetic justice. Poetic justice. If I told you that a flower bloomed in a dark room, would you trust it? I mean, I write poems in these songs dedicated to you when you're in the mood for empathy. It's blood in my pen. Better yet, with your friends and them. I really wanna know you all. I really wanna show you.